Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hell yeah. So we had a good music chat last time. I'd like to go a bit more life-centric this time, if, okay. if you're down with that. I am. Um, and just kind of find out about you, uh, yeah. about your life. Um, maybe we could start with your upbringing and your sort of early childhood years and your family. Okay. Um, I was born if in... If you wouldn't mind just sort of directing, yeah. if that's cool. I was born in uh, eastern Alabama in 1974. And it's a, uh, a textile town. Um, there are quite a few around that area, um, r- very rural, but then industry came in and um, cotton mill towns. So uh, the area where I, the specific area where I grew up was split up into little neighborhoods and those neighborhoods were, were named after this particular mill in that town. Um, it's really cool now to go back. They're all closed at this point. They're all defunct, but the shell of the mill is there, the, right. the red brick, and they were all built in the early 1900s. And um, that's how people, I would guess that those little towns were built for that reason, you know, because my grandparents lived in a company house. Um, I found some of their, some of their um, pay stubs from the 1940s. Uh, my grandfather in particular, he, his name was Charlie. He made uh, like $15 a week. Um, and and that's hard graft as well, right? Yeah, he was a a loom repair man, uh, cotton loom. Um, that they made towels and sheets and things like that. 
anyhow, I think five dollars went to rent. Right off, right off the top of the. Was check. it the case that a lot of the the mill owners would perhaps own the the houses and the lands as well, so they they'd have them. full mm-hmm. lockdown? And they, they all of those little houses looked identical. You know, it was. Uh, it gave my a life proper to man made town. Yeah, s- signed away their life to the company store kind of thing, but then eventually after that. Um, that was my dad's parents. They bought a farm there as well in the uh, out in the country, and that's where I grew up on a, on a small farm. Um, yeah, and so my, was that your parents' profession? N- no, um, my mom and dad divorced w- before I was aware of anything. I was two, I right. think. But um, so she was a nurse, and he was a auto body repair man, worked on cars. But uh, he had grown up farming. Um, growing vegetables and he had cows and horses and chickens and uh, even a pig or two from time to time as I got older pigs are fantastic animals but my dad is one of the guys that I think about this now a lot now that I'm older I didn't appreciate it as much when I was a kid but now he's one of those guys that really is well he comes from a generation of guys that really are renaissance men they know a little bit about everything um, he could build a house or fix a car or, or uh, put in plumbing or grow vegetables or tend to animals and you know deliver a foal or um, you'd be hard pressed to find adult men now that know how to do shit <laughs> you know change a fucking light bulb exactly <laughs> so I always uh, well over the years I've gained more and more respect for him uh, I always have respected him. He's my hero. But I think, man, what he's been through. He fought in a war and uh, raised my sister and I and, um, you know, kept food on the table. And So you grew up with your sister and your dad? Uh, split, splitting time between right. my mother and father. So it was, uh, you know, that, that, uh, uh, that type of situation. Yeah, yeah. So did you have, uh, you know, a healthy, close relationship with both of them? The divorce yeah. maybe didn't yeah. affect and they your were always personal very relationships civil. with them. Yeah, it was good. I think that they were just um, a great example of a young couple who got married and maybe maybe too young. <laughs> so, right. And, they, and back in the day when if you, I guess, kind of got married, it was almost like taboo to get divorced. It was, not, it, it was frowned upon, I'm sure. But, you know, move on. Yeah. Um, but it was great. He um, and he's a guitar player, singer, and was very much um, what he likes is bluegrass music and traditional country music. Um, uh, Pre sixties, really. He's not. He's not keen on drums and electric, loud electric music. It's it's acoustic based music um, mostly. And, uh, so, so he's a Pete Seeger kind of dude. He's yeah, cutting yeah. wires. I mean, he yeah, he was <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, he loves Bill Monroe and the Stanley Brothers and Jimmy Martin and Hank Williams Sr. He always gets accepted into that, right? Um, but my mom, she liked the Stones and the Beatles and Bob Dylan. Um, so it was a nice juxt- juxtaposition there of music. So that kind of meeting of styles was really there from the outset in terms of your just mm-hmm. appreciation of music from a young age it was and um, the funny thing too when I started to understand what I really liked and why I liked it as far as music goes mm-hmm. I became a complete nerd about it and got into not only what my dad liked but stuff that came before that even like Jimmy Rogers um, the Carter family 
And then I got into Delta Blues, which um, is uh, almost a mirror image of of that music of Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family. It's the really the um, that would be the white man's blues, really. And then the black version of that are obviously the Mississippi guys and the Piedmont guys, um, Sunhouse and Charlie Patton and Blind Blake and um, Blind Lemon Jefferson and. Uh, but the, but the the very interesting thing to me as I dug into that music was they were recording a lot of the same songs. Yeah, yeah. Like sitting on top of the world, uh-huh. um, just stylistically very different approaches. Yeah, yeah. But I'm like, wow, okay, they were they were drawing from the same well here. Yeah. So like even the Mississippi Sheiks, they had fiddles, uh, and they played fiddle tunes. Um, so it's always been. Anyway, you know, fast forward, I'm like, okay, well, we play the music that we play. I think is full of all of that as well, blues and country and gospel and and rock and, and roll. Rock and roll. Um, let me ask you this: How old are you, Charlie? Forty-two. So, I mean, it's quite in the UK. It's unusual, anyway. Maybe it's a different case in the states, but you don't really meet any young kids or teenagers who are listening to old time. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you just don't. Everyone's listening to say, you know, Nirvana or Guns and Roses right. or whoever the big band of the day is. So, were you sort of being exposed to that just through your family, and you weren't necessarily forced to like it? You did just have an interest in it from a very early age. And yeah. the question is, were a lot of your sort of friends into it as well, or were you kind of the odd kid? That- no, I was odd. Yeah, none of my friends cared. I mean. Uh, Early on, you know, I, my dad bought me a guitar when I was six years old, and I started to learn the songs that he played, um, folk songs, you know, and uh, and that was cool. But I didn't have any other six-year-old friends that wanted to play Wreck of the Old '97 <laughs> or that knew <laughs> yeah, anything yeah, yeah. what we'd be talking about. So that was really just it was really just for him and me, you know. It was a we bonded. He taught me that, you know. So that's something that I will carry forever. But then when I was about eleven, um. 11 or 12 years old, I think, when, when then rock and roll really just hit me hard. You know, Aerosmith and the Stones and Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. And, um, and that's the age, isn't it? Yeah. Pre-teen, like, going into that yeah. hormonal whirlwind, that's when rock and roll, if you're going to get yeah. introduced to it, that's the time, isn't it? I mean, I was like, fuck uh, this acoustic music. I want to play Iron Man. Yeah, you know? right, And, right. of course, all my friends, they liked Van Halen and yeah. Aerosmith. That's how we bonded. <laughs> yeah. And that's how... You know, I that was I was one of the boys. That's we loved that shit, and uh, still do. So, at some point, you know, right around then, I couldn't be bothered with Hank Williams anymore. I was just like that was gone. But then, fast forward about seven years to seventeen, eighteen, nineteen years old, it all came rushing back. Right, just the importance of it, because um, you were old enough to appreciate mm-hmm. the lineage. Yeah, and somewhere in there, I've I've told. Um, someone before that I remember specifically I remember hearing Honky Tonk Women and thinking this is a, it's this is the same thing as Bill Monroe it's just louder it's the same vocal harmony yeah. it's the same phrasing it's a country song you know it's the first I mean the Stones that was they I think Keith Richards admits that that was Graham Parsons influence on the Stones was right, that right. countryfied kind of thing and boy, did they do it well. What a character he was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, so did your dad ever sort of tour or play shows or make no. record? He was just a kind of at home. Yeah. 
um, he still to this day he's retired now from from work. He's seventy, but uh, he every Monday night he has friends over nice. for a big for a big bluegrass jam. So, so it's a musical household, really, yeah, and still is. He loves it. Yeah, he I'm was surprised he never um, turned loose and. But there's an unspoken rule in little towns like where I come from that you stay, that there's that this is your home, you know. You get married here, mm-hmm. Have raise kids. a family. Yeah, that's it. Continue the the tradition, mm-hmm. or did the town you, would dry up, you know. Did you have a hunger in your blood from an early age to hit the road and see the world and and get out? <sighs> and was music your way of doing yeah. that? Well, you know, it's like so many people. I felt very uncomfortable in school. And I didn't really uh, relate to to jocks or popular people. You know, I was kind of um, socially awkward. And just like we were talking about, I didn't have any friends that were into, you know, in high school, nobody else knew what Exile on Main Street was. Right. <laughs> I was by myself. So they all What was the music of the day? Def Leppard. Right. Um, which I love Def Leppard too, but, uh, well... It's according to what year. When I was in high school, I remember it was MC Hammer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Vanilla Ice. One good thing, though, from eighth grade on, Guns N' Roses was massive. And they were a big part of of not only my, but my friend's musical awakening, too. It was like, oh, wow. Okay. Because I, I hated, like, um, hairband music. I remember not ever really relating to that. Um, not Your all. rats and warrants and yeah. I mean, I poison. look. I look back now, and they were they were making music um, for that time, and they you know they were doing. There's some good songwriting in there. As there well. is, especially Cinderella yeah, all, yeah. and Tesla. I love those two bands, but I never was keen on um, the Molly Crews and Poisons of the world. Um, I just thought it was contrived, you know. But then Guns and Roses appeared, and I was like, okay, this is not. This is real. It's street, it's gritty, mm-hmm. it's raw. He's, and I, I would figure that Slash probably sold more or less Pauls than just about anybody down through the years. And top hats and bottles of Jack, probably. Exactly, and cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. um, at what age did you start a band and start playing and decide that you know that was the, the path for you? Uh, or well, did it kind of come slowly we, and naturally? And It was. Um, well, I had a guitar and an amp, and, and I met friends in, high, in junior high school that... One guy had a drum kit, one guy had a bass, so our first band was just a uh, a bedroom band, you know, garage band with no singer, and we just learned our favorite songs without vocals and um, never had a gig, you know. But then, uh, probably about 15 or 16, I met the first guy, I, I wasn't a singer, I was terrified, I, I was too shy to do that, I just wanted to be a good guitar player back then, but I met a singer. And we put together the first real band, um, quote-unquote, real band. Um, and we started playing birthday parties and things like that. My own birthday party was, I think, our first gig. <laughs> so Amazing. My 16th We guaranteed birthday. to get that gig. Mm, yeah, I got this one <laughs> nailed down. Um, yeah, and then it just it just grew from there. I played with the same guys from my hometown for, for a long time, up until about 18, 19 years old. Um, just, we started playing bars on the sly without being 21 you know little places little hole in the wall joints and where the understanding was okay well you can play music in here just don't drink anything and did you adhere to those rules no, no. I mean once they turn their <laughs> back no. they, yeah you know. yeah but what age were you when you first had your taste of uh, alcohol 
remember uh, the first time you got drunk? Drunk, I would say, was 16. I do remember this specific yeah, um, occasion. And it was... Uh, but I'd had tastes of alcohol before that, but the first time I really got drunk and got sick, you know, That's, that everyone is sick the first time. I think. And it was night train and it was be, I can blame it on guns and roses because <laughs> we had a little party, me and friends of ours and our little girlfriends and all. And, and I thought, well, I, I don't think I was the only one. I think my buddies or two were like, we got to get some night. We got to see what this means. What's it, what's this all about? And it's horrible. Is it's it? like sweet, yeah, grocery Cheap, store. Strong. Wine. Yeah terrible so you're drinking it with one intention and that's to get fucked up drank it got fucked up got sick and uh it was not pleasant i am um, sorry i sound like a name drop because i'm going to name drop again but i interviewed d snyder once and he said mm-hmm. the first time he got drunk he vomited and then he never drank again hmm. ever and i'm like you must wow. be the only person in the history of people yeah. to do that well ted nugent says the same thing right but no i i that was just the beginning yeah yeah <laughs> um no i kept it under control uh and probably drank less than most anybody I knew in a band for years. I didn't get really rough with it until my mid-twenties. I don't know what happened. I guess I just... Um, I don't know, you know. And then you start looking for other bad things to mm-hmm. enjoy, and I found those two. And I, I put it all down about ten years ago. I've been sober about ten years. Really? Wow, mm-hmm. that's a long time, man. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Um, I had to. I was just one of those that was... It just wasn't working, you know. Some people are good at it. Some people can drink all night and and uh, do blow and do you know and and be creative and be productive. But I couldn't. I was just a wreck. So I think I, uh, yeah, about ten years ago, I added lot added years to my drummer's life because <laughs> he used to be the one that would try and, and keep me in line, you know. And right. I mean, that's impossible. If somebody doesn't want to be kept in line, they're not gonna. So did that put pressure and tension on the group as a whole and on no. your friendship with him? Not at all. No. Um, you have that kind of healthy relationship mm, where you can just be fully open and yeah. upfront and yeah. And I, and I, I didn't go into it either with like I'm making this decision for everybody else too. It was just like I got to do this for me. You guys can do whatever you want to do. Um, but then I slowly started to realize, okay, nobody else in the band was being an asshole. It was me. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, so it was easy then, you know, it's like, okay, I got myself, I've got myself sorted out. So here we go. And, you know, we've always been open to, um, do what we can to help one another, you know? And, um, I mean, and that happens to this day when people go through trying times, you know, the rest of the band's there to, it's like, what, what can I do to help you, man? You know, cause we need to keep doing this. This is what we love. It's our livelihood. So. How long have you been rocking in a band now? How long has Black Beast Spank been going? Is it like 16 f- years? 16? Um, and it just doesn't seem that like that long, you know? Well, you're obviously still like, you know, there's, there's fueling the fire and you're still obviously just, you know, creatively inspired, but also enjoying it and loving it. Yeah. Um, we really do. I mean, there, there are times when, you know, we've had years where we played upwards of 200 shows you know between 200 and 250 and and that seems like way too much and i think at the time it probably felt like way too much um but i think it gave us some serious muscle as a band not not just literally but um, live chops yeah 
um, and and mentally, just it 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 added some scar tissue that toughened us up, and and so we can uh, continue on through most anything. Knockwood. We are the road crew, right? Yeah. I mean, touring can be extremely tough. Um, you're obviously at the end of what is it like a five week run now? So I guess that's mm. is that a long stretch in Blackberry Smoke terms, or is that a yeah. fairly standard? It is. We it's our longest European run. Right. We've normally done three weeks. The first time we came over, we did a month, and it just felt like so long to um, uh, not only the time but the distance. Yeah, yeah. Because anywhere in the U.S., you can be home in four hours uh-huh. on a plane. Yeah, but. Um, but you know, um, when there is, a, I know it sounds heavy to say demand, but when we have opportunities, we, we want to try and jump on those if we can and make the most of it. And so this time, it kind of called for a five-week run, so that's what we did. Well, that's a good sign. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but has it been like, a, on this side of the pond at least, a kind of slow and steady build mm-hmm. yeah. for you guys? quicker in the uk than anywhere else i would say really because our first uk show was only three or four years ago i think and it was at the the barfly in camden really that was the first uk gig and then we just played the roundhouse last week yeah so that's not bad going man i would say that's not slow growth no (laughs) that's pretty quick but i mean the obviously the band's been together for way longer than that but it we just waited a long time to be able to well we didn't wait to be able to um it took us a long time to get to the UK. Um, it was, it's very, you know, coming to Europe at, for a band is very expensive. Yeah, yeah. It's risky. Yeah. So it And took, you have to have that fan base there who are familiar with you. Yeah. To then grow. But if there's nothing there to begin with, then it's kind of just like throwing it is. darts into Hoping an open they stick. space, isn't it? So I think our first time over was 2009 to Europe. And we did a a punk rock tour I mean it was there were some there were some venues that were questionable (laughs) Uh, there was it was trial by fire and we had we had worked our our way into earning a little bit of a fan base in the states at that point you know we, we, we were doing okay yeah and then we came over to Europe and started over and uh and it was pretty miserable we played 20 22 shows in a row without a day off the first tour but but no UK shows the guy that we worked with who was fantastic hi Manny um, he he doesn't work in the UK or didn't at that point um, for whatever reason I think work visas are different um, at any rate um, but we really wanted to go and we, we started to have correspondence from UK fans saying we're like when are on. you coming you know what was the album that was the tipping point was there one over this side well, we released the Whippoorwill worldwide, right? And so then we had it was like, okay, we have to go now. So that was kind of the international tipping point, mm-hmm. was that record? And we changed booking agencies, and we're working with with uh, the agency we work with now, and they have uh, a UK agent, so it all worked out. Um, let's go to, I guess, the first record. What do you, I was listening to that last night after a, a few drinks on the way home, and that's a fucking rocker of a record. Oh, thanks, man. Um, what's your memories of making that? Uh, it's a bad luck ain't a crime mm-hmm. yeah well we were talking to Jesse Dupree our buddy from the band Jackal who produced it and he had heard a demo of the song Sanctified Woman and loved it we had a two song demo Sanctified Woman and Normal Town as the B-side and he said this is my favorite song ever wow I want you to come 
can you guys come on the road with Jackal and open shows for us? So we said, yeah. So that's when we all quit our day jobs and bought a van and, uh, or maybe rented a van. Um, and went on the, we learned how to go on the road. And uh, it was about a month of shows with them. Good times? Great times. Way up into Michigan and Wisconsin and almost to Canada, up in the snow. First time we'd ever been, first time I'd ever really been out of the South for any length of time. It was an eye-opening experience. So then we get back home, and he said, we need to make a record. Because we'd been selling that little two-song CD or cassette or whatever it was on the road. He goes, you got some more songs? I said, yeah, I've got about four more. And he goes, "Um, well, six songs is not enough for an album. (laughs) You better go write some more songs. So I wrote a few more, and then we we recorded a cover of The Georgia Satellites, Another Chance. Which we were personally, I wouldn't have decided to record that for an album. We were playing it live, but he wanted Jesse wanted us to. He said, "That's great, do it." They're obviously a great band, and I mean, an influence on on your music. And yeah, it's a nice tip of the hat, I guess, right? To it is, and it's local. it's a deep cut for the satellites too. So anyway, I mean, it was a win win. That's yeah. what we did. And uh, I remember. Um, it didn't take very long to record. We actually... Oh, wait a minute. I'm forgetting now. Hold on. It's been a long time since I listened it's to our first It's 10 years, album. right? 11? Yeah. Yeah. We took some live stuff. Some some of the songs we had recorded out in Sturgis, South Dakota. Um, so we cleaned up some of those live tracks and used those. And uh, at that point, Jesse was like, you you know Fandango, the ZZ Top album. I said, yeah. He goes, you know, it's got studio songs on one side and live songs on the other side. Let's do that. So that's what we did. It's easy top you got to tour with recently, right? Or a couple of years back. When was that? Well, first time was back in 2008 or nine, I think. It was great. What are those guys like to hang out with and spend time with? Because they've, I mean, they were there from the 60s, right? Yeah, Kinda. 69. They're fantastic. Um, I actually saw them play in here. Yeah. You're playing tonight. They did a Glastonbury warm-up show in there. And it was, you know, for them, obviously, a very intimate show. And right. It was, it was amazing. Well, Dusty Hill and Frank Beard are sort of quiet. They don't come around as much. But Billy, is, Billy Gibbons is very personable, and he's become a friend at this point, which is it's crazy to think that, because if you had told me that when I was a kid, I would have told you you were crazy. But um, he's a great man. He's a, an incredible artist. He's very, very smart and articulate and very creative. And, and he's one of the coolest guitar players in history so it's we're very lucky to have a connection to him you know do you sit around at night with people like that and kind of learn from them and hear their is he one of those kind of guys that has a lot of sort of wisdom to impart and anecdotes to share and he does um and he is a an extreme character and he's always in character i mean he is 100 percent through and through billy gibbons um and he gives advice he's given me and us tons of advice over the years whether we heed it all or not is debatable <laughs> but um, he's got great ideas and weird ideas but um, but I le- I mean he's just one of a kind there's nobody like him you know but I've, I've been asked that question a lot over the years about what we've learned from from like from touring with bands like Skinner and ZZ Top and Actually, I think that I don't know how much we actually learn from those bands. We learned from the experience ourselves of doing what we were doing. We learned, okay, I shouldn't do that because it didn't work. <laughs> or we, we learned very quickly as an opening band to get the hell out of the way. 
we would play our 30 minutes. It's a tough gig, right? Get out of the way. Yeah. Because you're, you're really, you know, you're the opener. Um, people have often asked, what's it like to open for those bands? Or how great is that that you got that opportunity? And I'm like, it is great. It's an opportunity to play in front of a bunch of people who've never heard of you. But a lot of the, those people don't fucking care. So it's not like, here's success on a silver platter for you. You're opening for Leonard Skinner. And you're instantly going to get a quarter of a million fans in a week, yeah. And I've heard opening bands uh, so many times over and over complain about the amount of time they get to play. And I've been one of them. I've been like, we're only playing 20 minutes? That sucks. But when you get up there and do it, sometimes it's like, boy, I sure am glad we're only playing 20 minutes because these people don't fucking want to hear us. So, yeah, it's it's... Those were great experiences, and some nights they were horrific. And you know, like you like, said earlier, they toughen you up and they build a, they do. a resilience. Mm-hmm. And a... Yeah, but I think that we learn more, or a band learns how to be a band and learns what to do by by the act of doing it, by, yeah. by playing your own shows. By In our case, it was playing bars for years, um, three and four sets a night kind of things, and we honed our craft. Do you think that still happens? I speak to a lot of bands and they say, you know, when we started out, we played multiple sets a night. I can't really imagine that happening. Not in the UK, at least, anymore. I'm pretty far... people want to close early and get the club night going. Right, right. Um, I (laughs) think there are are tons of places in the States that still have that kind of thing. I've got some... some, uh, uh, Well, I used to have some friends that still did it. I don't know if they're still doing it now or not. But anyway, I, I remember learning more from those years about be in the you know, you're the band up there and your job is to play music and fill the dance floor and sell drinks <laughs> yeah you know and it you you learn then to be a performer to be a salesman you know for whatever it is you're selling your music the dance floor or alcohol mm-hmm. you know but you learn how to perform for people you're not afraid you're not staring at your shoes i think that a lot of that is missing from that, from today's bands because they didn't have to go in there and please people and so they stand and gaze at their fucking shoes at a show. And I'll, I went to see a band, and I will leave them unnamed, but I was so bummed. They're a newer band. And it was a sold-out show. It was a theater in Seattle, Washington. We were on the road, and we had a night off. And I thought, if I bought a ticket for this show, I'd want my money back. These dudes look so bored. you know. And not that I expect them to do a flip, but, like, please pretend that you are happy to be here. Yeah. You know? playing music that you wrote for people who want who paid to hear it so um, as a punter it's not too much to ask is it exactly yeah it's kind of your job (laughs) (laughs) yeah um what was i going to say there's there seems to me to be like if you can convert a room full of people who aren't your fans at the start of the night you know as you say you're playing bars they're just there on their night out you know Uh it could be any band you're just background music as far as they're concerned but if you can learn to convert those kind of crowds Mm -hmm. once you get in front of people who are you know there for you then you're sailing aren't you you're flying high that 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 was the turning point i think in our career if if somebody were to say when did you realize that it was working was the first time that we played a club show and it and and there there was a line of people around the building to see us. Uh, and I thought, oh, they're here to see us. They're not here to see ZZ Top tonight or Zach Brown or whoever, you know. They came to see Blackberry Smoke. So, like, the first sold-out show, I think, was like, okay. Nice. Whatever we're doing now is working. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How do you sort of see yourself in terms of the the fan base that you have? Is it a real amalgamation? Because you've obviously been in the rock world, you've been in the country world, and those yeah. two fan bases, are they as different as you think? Or are there just generally a lot of similarities in the sense of they're all there to have a good time and right. sing and um i think that there's well excuse me not that much different uh not that much difference as far as uh, how do i put this well a lot of our fans is the demographic that we seem to appeal to they like acdc leonard skinner and waylon jennings and Merle Haggard, so it's, and that, and I do too. So I understand where they're coming from. So maybe it is an age thing, and and but they know that they know us as a rock and roll band. They never even um, consider that we're a country band. They just don't. If we play a country song, they're just then they're like, look at them boys go playing that Merle Haggard, you know? Yeah. But we're still a rock band. Yeah. You know? Um. So I don't know. I. I um, did working with Zach and releasing that album on that label and touring with him, did that put you perhaps more in that world than you would have liked? No, it no. didn't, because they actually, um, the radio team there at Southern Ground, they worked a couple of singles that flopped. <laughs> so, And I remember thinking, well, I'm not, or well, all of us were like, we're not surprised because we've had this problem from the beginning, the two rock for country, two country for rock thing. We've never had radio support. I really don't think it's going to start now in the States because country radio stations, we're a little too rock and roll and the rock radio stations, we're just rednecks, you know, and they think, what is this, you know, so it's confusing. Um, because radio, over, I mean, less less so over here, but from the conversations I've had with people over there, radio is so like labeled and pigeonholed isn't it in terms of it its is. genre in the well, states and 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 it's very political and and it's one hand washes the other and it's a lot of it's it's disgusting to me if i'm, I'm going to be completely honest about it what we were faced with was we had a we had a workload as far as touring um that that was our way of life 
Now, it was presented to us that we had the option to play the radio game, which was to cancel all our shows and go on a radio tour, which is going to visit radio stations and basically kiss an ass and trying to get them to play our Please music. Please play us on the radio, and, yeah. And I thought... And do they pay you for those? No. no. But, but I thought, well, if we didn't have anything else to do, maybe we would consider doing that. But we've got a tour to do. We've got... We've got tons and tons of tour dates and that's how we make our living so no we can't cancel our tour how about this how about you invite those people to come to the to our show they can come to the show and have a good time how about that and then they'll see people enjoying this music and they can make up their own mind whether they like it or not nope that's not the way that it works and i thought well sorry that's the only way that we can work so if you want to bend cool if not don't play our music (laughs) You know, that's it. and I think that's kind of sad that that's ha- that that's what it's based on. Yeah, it's based on you're gonna play the you're gonna play my song because I come do something for you, not because it's a good song, but because we come do something for for this. I don't even know. I don't get it. I'm like, what are we actually doing? Um, are we? Is this somehow important? You know, but you know, it's a power thing. It has to be, right? I'm not so naive that I think that music is on the radio because it's good. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been that way in in decades. <laughs> but do you ever listen to the radio? I don't. No. Um, if I do, it's Sirius XM. You know, I definitely don't listen to country radio because the music is is god awful. It's like pop. Yeah, it's nothing that speaks to anybody I know. Um, my friends. You know, we like real music. Mm-hmm. Amen. And you play real music. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, and I mean, no offense to people who do. To each his own. You know, it's just it's a it's a taste thing. I've I've got nothing bad to say about anybody, just um, except for people that don't play our music. <laughs> <laughs> the man. Yeah. Um, how was working with Brendan O'Brien? On- Fantastic. Um, because he, I mean, he is he a Georgia guy? He is. As well, yeah. Kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And he's obviously, you know, from playing with Dylan and Neil Young to producing Black Crows and, you know, the list is endless. Yeah, he... he what did he bring to the table as a producer? He brought uh, s- several different things. Um, first and foremost, we knew that he was um, a great musician. He's a great guitar player keyboard player even a drummer not just like an engineer he's not just a pair of ears that'll come in for half a day and go i don't like this do something different you know he we we knew and we knew from our friends who had worked with him the crows and dan baird and all these people that he's very hands-on that he would be down in there um that it's very magical to work with him it's very exciting he's a passionate dude you know and he'll get the best performances from you that he can possibly get so um and then i'd never met him before we started the record and, and we got together and on the phone and he came out to a show in LA and he was really funny and he's great and he's bud you know and uh, anyway um, we talked over arrangements and stuff over the phone because he was working on ACDC's newest album then Rocker Bus he was in Canada and uh, anyway so we met up and he came to Atlanta we recorded there and um, for eight days I think we was the initial um schedule for tracking the songs and it, I, I won't bore you with all the details but it was it was great you know he and I you talked. did the whole album in eight days no well uh, the whole album in a month probably that's solid that's great mm-hmm. um, but we had talked about it he goes you know you just made a record that is basically you playing live the whippoorwill 
um, and I said, I know we want to make a record that's bigger sounding. We want like physical graffiti, or even parts of Led Zeppelin three or um, Aerosmith rocks. Things that have so much to hear. Like there's little textures and light and shade and all these different things that are really an experience. It's not just a band. He was right. We just made a a really raw album, but we wanted to make one that was just bigger. Mm-hmm. You know? That was my introduction to you guys. Was let me um, let me find you. Let me help you open the door. Yeah, that song because I was working at a radio station at the time and we were playing it, and I was like, "This is amazing." Well, it's funny because we all throughout the album. I mean, it was just fantastic. He's got so much knowledge, and he gets great tones and great big sounds, and he and he's very hands on, and and he's just right in there, one of the do one, one of the boys, you know. And, and then when we were all finished and we put it out and everybody's everything's great and there was a certain percentage of our fan base who didn't like it. It was different, you know. Um, some people were like, "This is overproduced," and, and I'm like, "It made me angry," you know. You can't win. I'm like yeah. what? Are you kidding? <laughs> and I had there was one journalist who made the point to me. He goes, "You know what? This for me." is like the whippoorwill is power age and holding all the roses is highway to hell and i said exactly that's what we were going for was that type of change not we didn't want it to sound like those albums but that type of change just a little bigger honing tweaking a little more to listen to big and exciting um we can make albums of ourselves just playing in a fucking room for the rest of our career let's make a big sounding record with brennan o'brien you know and that's what I think we did, and and so to those people who didn't like it, I, I just was like, I don't understand you, but whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, Rock and roll again is an absolute jam thank on the album as well. well. The, you know, thanks to social media, people, um, you can instantly know what they think, and this mob mentality starts. You know, like I remember one lady there on on Rock and Roll Again, and another couple of songs. There are like uh, slap vocal like a, a tape slap echo or double track and uh, one lady I was was like what is wrong with his voice I don't understand but I wanted to go hey you know what go listen to Gimme Three Steps which I know you probably love it's the same thing on the vocals on that song it's just a production thing it's it's interesting you know sometimes you anyway I won't go into it's all something the... new it's something different yeah, yeah. enjoy it but and I, if you don't, then those first three are still there. But you know what? The same thing had happened when the Whippoorwill came out. There was no Facebook then. We had a message board on our website. And there was a whole list of people who hated it. They were like, what, Zach Brown has ruined Blackberry Smoke. <laughs> just, uh, you know, and it's heart-crushing kind of shit. You're yeah. just like, really? I love it, so I fucking don't care if you don't like it. But then that'll be the people that'll come back later and be like, you know what? I, it took me a while, whatever, for whatever that's worth, and now I love it. I'm like, well, good, thank you. You know, I don't know why it took you a while, but <laughs> I mean, if you... I think it's ultimately a sign of when fans feel like they have ownership over a band, that's because they have a deep, yeah. profound love for that band. Right. And ultimately, that is a good thing. It's mm-hmm. just sometimes you do just wish they'd sort of see the bigger picture and be along right. for the ride with you. Well, we've tried to make it clear. Um, I think our our real fans understand that it is a ride that we're not going to repeat ourselves and make the same album over and over again, because um, that's boring. Yeah, amen. You know, if Zeppelin did that, we'd hate them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, how fucking different were all their albums? Yeah, all completely different. The only band who can do it and do it and do it successfully is ACDC. They're the yeah, only yeah, yeah. band. Or Motorhead. 
previously. You're right. You know yeah. what? But yeah. but even Motorhead sort of production. I guess so. Yeah, in production, yeah, yeah. As far as production value, they kind of would change with the times. Yeah, yeah. Um, like an arrow, just to bring it up to date. I think we're pretty much out of time anyway. Um, thanks for a great chat, Charlie. Really enjoyed Thank you. it. Um, what was the decision, or sorry, why was the decision made to go, uh, you know, and produce it yourselves this it, time? It really wasn't made. Um, it was a timing thing. Right. Um, we hadn't discussed making an album yet, and we we were looking at a month off last January. Uh, and we hadn't talked about a producer or anything like that. And I wrote a batch of songs really quickly. They came really quickly. Um, well, and, two, and two, I, two albums in two years is fairly rapid yeah, going for you guys, isn't it? Well, I, well, I had uh, we had this time off, and I and I had just finished a bunch of new demos of new songs, um, like fifteen songs, and, and I was really excited about them. And so I sent them to the guys and was like, "Well, I'm doing what we usually do is to get together and." and rehearse them and we did and it felt really good and, and the studio is just right up the street from where we all live where we had just recorded Holding All the Roses and I said to Britt the drummer I said let's go record um, who knows maybe we'll get a record finished and that's what, exactly what happened and we knew I was like hey you know what if it sucks we can call Brendan or we can call whoever you know and spend a ton of money <laughs> but no I mean literally we, we use the same engineer Billy Bowers who's great and and um, in all seriousness we thought if, if we run into a problem we'll we'll call a producer and we'll start over and we didn't so and it sounds great the sound the it's production the, value of it it's the same basic team as the last one but um, same, and I guess you'd sort of learn a few skills and things off Brendan, right? And you'd pick yeah. up a, a lot from working with someone like that. Totally, yeah. And uh, I mean, I really um, just kind of let it, let it um, uh, unfold naturally, you know? Like, okay, this sounds good. Do we need to change it? Nope. Is the solo too long? Nope. Is it this is a lot song too long? Nope. Print next. Yeah. Yeah. I mean really a lot of production ideas that most producers that a band will work with will have. A lot of the ideas uh are pointless at this point. I'm like, okay, we're not making singles, so a song doesn't need to be three minutes long. If it if it, if the song calls for that it be three minutes long, absolutely. But if we're jamming and it feels good leave the tape rolling we're gonna we're gonna play let it be eight minutes long who gives a shit <laughs> you know whatever is the drummer your best friend in the band it seems like he uh, I mean yeah and yeah. I mean we all are really yeah. I mean you know Paul and Brandon tight group yeah we are we're all tightly knit and there are little clicks that happen but I mean he is yeah he's probably my best friend probably has been for 20 years but we're you know we're like a little band of brothers. Every band says that. <laughs> Some bands say it, but you can tell that they don't really mean it. They don't stay together, um, do they? No. Yeah. And or I, they ride around in different buses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Greg Ullman, we'll end it on him, if that's okay. I mean, uh, obviously, again, it's kind of, you know, I think they're one of the key bands for you. Would that be safe to say? Absolutely. Very important. Um, important music, for not only for our band, for, but for for southern people I mean the Allman Brothers and Leonard Skinner are really something to be proud of 
coming from where we come from. It's like these are our these are, this is our music. It's like I'm a Birmingham boy, so if, you know for us it's Black Sabbath and yeah. Priest and Peaky Blinders. Yeah, hey, Amen. <laughs> I love that shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't imagine what life would be like without those bands. He looms large. Fucking Greg Allman. How heavy is that? When I listen to it now, it's very surreal. I'm like, that's Greg Allman singing on our record. You know, I don't know if that feels like full circle or not, but yeah, or it's not closure. No, but it, it's but certainly it is. a milestone. It is. Yeah, man. Well, congratulations on you know just being true and honest, and you know in an age of not much integrity. Thank it's you. great that bands like yourselves are succeeding and you know building and this is for me very clearly just you know that's still kind of the start over here at least yeah i i thank you and i hope so it feels it feels like we're we're accomplishing something i'm looking forward to tonight all right thanks for your time charlie yeah man thank you you know she made me rock and roll Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.